Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales. A podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. I'm Sue Roberts, Leadership Development and Quality Assurance Advisor for Schools with the Leadership Academy. This episode features Professor Damien Hughes, an international speaker and best-selling author who combines his practical and academic background within sport, organisational development and change psychology to help organisations and teams to create a high-performing culture. He is the author of eight best-selling business books, including Liquid Thinking, Liquid Leadership, How to Change Absolutely Anything and The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset. He is also the co-host of the High Performance Podcast, an acclaimed series of interviews with elite performers from business, sports and the arts, exploring the psychology behind sustained high performance. This podcast is from Series 4 of the Leadership Unlocked webinars. Bonadar, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, it's a real, a real treat to be here with you today, so uh, thank you for investing your time in what is the surreal period of our lives to uh, to dial in for today's session. If you'll permit me, let me just explain who I am, because I think it may offer you some sense of context around what we're going to cover today. Uh, my name is Damien Hughes. I do three different roles, really, so it's worth explaining what they are. The first one is that I work as a visiting professor of organisational psychology and change at Manchester Met University. So I look very much at how teams come together, how they form, and then how do you build cultures to be robust and strong enough to cope with the inevitable pressures that change will bring to bear. The second job I do is I work as a consultant across a wide range of organisations from business, uh, occasionally in the world of education, but predominantly most of it is in the world of elite sport, looking how do you create high-performing cultures. And that informs the third role that I do, that I've written a number of books on this topic, and I currently co-host this podcast series that's called the High Performance Podcast, where we interview a whole range of elite performers and ask them the simple question, how do you do what you do? And I'd like to share with you today some of the research from this, uh, these two years' worth of interviews so far that hopefully you can take away and apply in your own organisations. Now, before we go any further, though, it's we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that we are doing this remotely. And you know as well as I do, the world has changed irrevocably since the pandemic launched last March. And it's changed in one way in terms of our mindset of how we embrace and adopt technology. Three years ago, I was travelling on a train from Manchester down to London, and I scrolled through social media. And I saw a post from a guy called Jean de Widbrook. He was writing to Southwest Trains to complain about the quality of their Wi-Fi access. And even when he was complaining to Southwest Trains about the quality of their technology, technology was still finding a way of laughing at him. I think three years later, having gone through Zoom meetings galore, 
we're all under with Brooke in some way. We're all frustrated by technology, spell checks and any other devices that we're battling with. So what I'd encourage you to say is, let's make the best of this situation. If there are any issues or any problems, please just let us know and we'll be as flexible as we possibly can to accommodate so you can get the best out of this session. But let's go back and share with you some of the insights and get into some of the detail for this stuff. Because as I said, we've interviewed a whole range of elite performers and the simple question we've asked is, how do you do what you do? And I'll share with you now some of the insights as we've gone through this. But before we do, there's almost a challenge that's worth laying down to you. What you're going to get out of this depends on having a mindset of humility, which is something consistent across all our high performers. Now, I'm conscious that humility is one of these things that you'll often see someone boasting on social media about their new car or their big posh house and telling you how down to earth they are and just like me and you, their lives are. Humility isn't a meme or a cliche or a social media post. It's a mindset. And it's a mindset that needs to be developed by understanding the three stages that go into building it. And I'd like to show you what they are by starting this webinar by playing a game. The game we're going to play is called Never Have I Ever Said. Let me explain. I'd like you to catch your mind back to March last year when our political leaders, whether it was Mark Drayford or Boris Johnson or Nicola Sturgeon, came on our TV screens and told us that the world as we knew it was just about to get stood on its head. In that 18 months that you've been watching TV and looking for updates, I'd like you to tell me what is the least likely of these three phrases have you and your family and friends found yourself uttering as you watch these political briefings on our screen? I'll give you the three options, and if you can open the chat function, give us your answer, A, B or C. So is the least likely sentence you find yourself making to our political leaders this, that these people are absolutely useless? Is the second phrase, I reckon I could do a better job than these clowns. Or is the least likely phrase this, what a difficult task these people are having to deal with such complexity and ambiguity. I've simply got no idea how they would even begin to cope. So if you open your chat function, we'll give you 10 seconds to register. Which is the least likely of these three phrases have you found yourself uttering in the last 18 months? A, B or C. So thanks for responding so quickly. I can see that Phil, Jen, Rod, Jeremy, Elizabeth, Neil, you're all coming in quite quickly with this. Kenny, Christine. Mark, Helen, Tegwin, Angela. So for most of us there, the predominant response is that the least likely phrase we find ourselves uttering is C, which is an incumbent when it comes to developing a mindset of humility. Let me explain by showing you how the three stages. By looking at it on a simple graph, based on your levels of confidence against your depth of knowledge, for most of us, the first stage that we have to get through to develop humility is we get through stage one as quick as possible. This is what we refer to as peak idiot stage. Peak idiot stage is where you've got high confidence based on low levels of knowledge. It's like the early stages of X Factor or Britain's Got Talent when somebody turns up declaring that they're going to sing like a, um, Mariah Carey and sound like a cat being strangled when they actually open their voice. It's funny because it's peak idiot stage. You don't realise how bad you are to understand how far away from good you need to get. But the quicker you get through that stage, the sooner you arrive at stage two, which is the valley of humility. And this is characterised by curiosity, 
being open-minded, coming along and asking questions and joining in and giving it a go, failing, reflecting and going again. One of our interviewees gave us a great phrase on the Valley of Humility. He said, your ability to be great at something depends on how long you're prepared to be bad at it for. Which means that the longer you can spend here, the more tools and knowledge you acquire that eventually gets you to stage three, which is the hill of knowledge. And the hill of knowledge is where you've got a level of appreciation for your craft. You know how to run a successful school and to make a difference to the lives of the children you're working with. But you're never afraid to come along to CPD sessions like this and go back down into the valley to pick up the bits of information you can take away and re reapply on the hill. But the choice, so what I'm asking you to do today is come with me into this valley and explore some of the research that we've got that you can take away at the end of this and reapply on your own hill of knowledge. One of our interviewees was an entrepreneur, a lady called Holly Tucker. She created a business called Not on the highstreet.com. She described this mindset as a superpower in her world. And the reason, which is just as applicable for you and your students, is this, that when you have a level of humility, it allows you to listen and learn so much more effectively. So warmed you up then and got you to understand the mindset required for this. We need to understand what does this actually have to do with your schools? Well, everything that we're going to talk about today can be put under, under the umbrella of culture, which matters an awful lot. Now, unconscious culture is a phrase that often gets banded around the world of education with not always a, a sense of explanation as to what it means. What's more helpful for us to understand is not what, what, uh, what, what culture means, what type of culture means is more effective. Let me explain. This is one of the most under-researched areas of organisational psychology, and it certainly was up until the early 1990s, when a couple of guys from Stanford University went into Silicon Valley to study all the startup businesses and what type of culture emerged. And what they found is for most organisations, most leaders, they spoke a good game about culture without actually understanding it in any detail. So it was almost like the equivalent of rolling a dice and seeing what emerged as a consequence. And what we know is if you choose to roll the dice on this topic of culture, you will get one of five different types that will come up. So it's more helpful to frame the conversation by understanding what type of culture do you have? And more significantly, what type do you want? So the first type of culture you can get if you choose just to take a chance on this is this one. This is what we refer to here as a star culture. And the star culture basically says that you go out your way to recruit the best talent you can. You pay them the highest salaries at the top of their band you can afford. You create, you go out to create the finest facilities you can get away with. And then you sit back and you wait for all that talent to come together and deliver spectacular success. The trouble with the star culture, though, is there's a great phrase around it that everyone wants to be the head waiter and nobody wants to wash the dishes. And it's often the discrepancy with those maybe... Uh, back of house or back of school roles that causes dysfunction and unhappiness. The second type of culture. An autocratic culture. This is where you get one or two powerful leaders that set the tone, my way or the highway. And everybody follows in their wake. 
which can be really effective. But as the example of Steve Jobs when he went into Apple demonstrated, when you step down, the vacuum left by your absence creates a whole heap of dysfunction uh, that follows. Or when you start making flawed decisions or complacency or selfishness creeps in, it often drags the culture down with it. The third type of culture... bureaucratic one and a bureaucratic culture is dominated by rules regulations policies and procedures whenever you make a decision you get a committee of people together and you attempt to reach a consensus there's a great phrase that a camel is a horse designed by a committee and it's the idea that you're constantly fudging and negotiating and politicking rather than do it making the right decision you're making the decision uh, to try and keep as many people happy as possible so what that implies, as the name indicates, is slow-moving, bureaucratic, not particularly agile organisations. The fourth type of culture. Is an engineering model. Now, despite the name, it's not about engineering, but it's about technical expertise. You bring people into your organisation because they've got a deep knowledge in a narrow domain. The trouble with this is, and the great flaw is, that this is, leads to silo mentalities, not a particularly great sharing environment. People become political and don't particularly help and support each other. So when we describe a high-performing culture, or when we talk about a good culture, or a learning culture, what we're really describing in the academic lingo is the fifth type. And the fifth type is a commitment culture. And what commitment culture tells us is that it will outperform those other four types on average by about 22%. And it's about answering two very powerful questions. What do we, what's our objective? And what are the rules of the game? How do we intend to get there? And it's built on solid foundations of humility, having a clear set of behaviors, an emotional intelligence that lies at the heart of it, a sense of complete accountability, and the ability to be flexible in our perspectives. The combination of all of them leads to high performance. So if you'll permit us, let's get into the detail as quick as possible, and we'll start looking at what this actually means in your world. And I want to introduce you to the, this idea of trademark behaviours. A trademark behaviour is something that maybe you're not familiar with as a phrase, but you will be familiar with it in practice. Think about, I know that every one of you on this call today has at some stage during your career have had to write or submit a CV or an application form to get the job that you're doing. So think about the information you share when you submit a form like that. It comes in three parts. The first part is you write down your academic track record. The second part is you write down your work experience that bears a relation to the job you're doing. But it's the third piece of information where you identify trademark behaviours. You sit down and reflect on how you show up when you're at your very best. And then you write them in some smart sounding sentences. You use phrases like, I'm a great team player, but I'm good at working on my own. I'm creative, but I'm really practical. I'm good at seeing the big picture, but I'm also good at detail as well. By the way, they're all phrases that I use on mine. But you get the idea that then you get the interview invite. So you, you sit down and you read and reread those words. You even practice doing interviews with somebody so you can rehearse your world from that perspective. And then you show up for the interview and you're entirely consistent with the words on that page. 
The question I'm interested in is, when did you last go back and look at those words after you were offered the job? Because if you're like most of us, the next time you'll consider it is when you decide to move on and apply for another role. And this is one of the great lessons that we've learned in this podcast series. High performers don't focus on this as an occasional thing. They focus on these behaviours as an everyday thing. Let me explain why by getting you to play another game. This game is called Spot the Problem. I'm going to put three pictures up here on the screen and your job's simple. Spot the problem. Tell me what is the issue on each of them. Here's picture number one. Here's picture number two. And my favourite is picture number three. Now, you can all immediately recognise the problem. I would describe it as they fail the Gandhi test. The Gandhi test is attributed to a famous quote from Mahatma Gandhi that said that for harmony, or in our language here, high performance to occur, you need your thoughts, your words, and your actions to be aligned. And what you spotted is there was a misalignment from what somebody said versus what they were doing. And this tells you that we're hardwired, that we can spot hypocrisy, at 100 yards. We spot people that are good at talking a good game and not necessarily backing it up as quickly as possible because it's a survival mechanism for us. So our instinct is we want somebody that does and says and thinks all in alignment. Give you a personal example. When we were recording our podcast, there was one day where we had an appointed interview time at 10 o'clock at 10 to 10 that morning. There was a knock on the door. And when I went to answer it, standing outside was Britain's greatest ever Olympic champion, Sir Chris Hoy. I'd never met Chris before, so I introduced myself when we were making small talk and I thanked him for arriving on time. And Chris was offended. When I asked him why he'd take offence, his answer was that we've arranged to meet at 10 o'clock. 10 to 10 is the minimum that you could expect from me. He said, to turn up later than that would indicate I think I'm more important than you. I think my time is more significant than yours. He said, I've arranged to be here at 10. 10 is the minimum. So when we interviewed Chris and we asked him the question, what were his three trademark behaviours? His answer, it won't surprise you, was immediate. Respect, humility and commitment. Now in that one anecdote, you've got a guy there that's humble enough to not think his Olympic titles afford him any extra credit, respect for other people in their time and a commitment to follow through and do what you said he would do. Now there's a great saying in military environments that when you come under pressure, you don't rise to the performance, you descend to your level of training. So identifying these behaviours and reinforcing them on a daily basis is key. And it also lay at the heart of interviews that we've done with five separate members of the most successful British sporting institution of the last 25 years, Manchester United. And the art of our question with them has been what underpinned their success. And consistently, the answer that we've had back is the relentless focus on behaviours. So to explain what they mean, let's play a variation on the old TV show Family Fortunes, but in homage to the manager there, let's call it Fergie Fortunes instead and show you how Sir Alex Ferguson laid down these behaviours and relentlessly applied them throughout his time as manager. The first of them was relentlessness, the idea that you win a trophy, you celebrate, but you immediately start planning your assault on the next one soon afterwards. It was at the heart of it. He had a great phrase in the club that my teams never get beat. We may occasionally run out of time, but we never get beat to show what relentlessness meant. 
So you can imagine his concern when his star striker, Dwight York, came to him in 1999, having won the European Cup, and asked whether he could take a year-long sabbatical to celebrate the achievement. Now, Ferguson observed Dwight York's behaviour carefully in the next 12 months, and he saw patterns of behaviour like turning up late for training. On one occasion, felt fallen asleep on the training field having arrived from a nightclub. And it indicated to him that his desire to go again and again and again had been sated, which was why he had little compunction <coughs> in removing York from the organisation. The second of his behaviours was about the courage to do the right thing when nobody was watching. So when his star striker, Ruud van Nistelrooy, responded to being dropped for a big cup final, by sitting behind Ferguson and choosing to abuse him on the substitutes bench. He felt that within a month of that experience, he had to go. The final example that he had was you had to be a team player. If there was ever a clash between what was right for you and your teammates, choose a team every time. So when David Beckham was being advised by his media team that his instinct whenever he scored a goal should be to run away from his teammates as opposed to towards them, because it would make a better shot of him on the back page of a newspaper. That was enough for Ferguson to eventually concede. <coughs> Nobody could be bigger than the team. So when we interviewed in the podcast series, the guy that's now responsible for re-establishing the culture, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, it'll come as no surprise to you that when we asked him what his priority was as leader, it was about removing ambiguity of behaviours, because that, he told us, is a true enemy of high performance. So my challenge to you is, are you clear what your trademark behaviours are for both you as a leader, but just as importantly for you as an organisation? Does it drive promotion, recruitment, rewards, and even exits from your organisation? Which brings us then to the second part of this, which is the role of emotional awareness. Now I'm conscious again, this is a phrase that is often used in education, my favourite definition of emotional awareness came from a special forces soldier called Nims Perger we interviewed. He's the world, he's set the record for climbing the world's highest mountains in a record time. He said emotional awareness is your ability to walk into a pressured situation and keep your eyes open and your bum shut and not the other way around, which is a pretty blunt and, um, and a blunt way of describing this. But... To illustrate what it means in more detail, let's play another game. This game is a variation on the TV show Question of Sport and their famous What Happened Next Round. I'm going to give you three incidents from the lives of our interviewees. I'll give you three options and in the chat function, you tell me what happened next. So the first one is back in 2003, Chris Hoy, who we've already met, was defending his world title in, in Germany. Now, as is the champion's privilege, you get to race last. So you get to watch what every one of your rivals does and know what you have to be. So when Chris Hoy was watching his rivals in the race, literally before he took to the track, he saw his German rival, Stefan Nimke, not only set the fastest time of the night, he watched him set the fastest time of all time. He broke the world record. So if Chris Hoy was going to defend his crown, he now needed to set a world record in the bargain. So in the chat function, give you five seconds to tell me what happened next. Here's your choices. Do you think Chris Hoy defended the, his crown by shattering the new world record? Do you think Chris Hoy ended up drawing the world record and having to share his crown? Or do you think Chris Hoy panicked at what his rival had done 
threw his game plan out the window, crashed and burned, um, and finished a disappointing fourth. Open your chat function, you get five seconds, A, B, or C. What follows next? So again, there's a fair few of you here responding really quickly, so thank you for doing that. The answer was C. Chris Hoy admitted it was humiliating what he did next. He panicked and threw all those months of preparation out of the window and just reacted rather than responded. Next round, Dame Kelly Holmes, 1995. She was a member of the British Armed Forces. They gave her a year to go on the European track circuit and she dominated it. She won every race she competed in. That led her to the World Finals in Stockholm, where she faced a Moroccan rival, Hasima Bulmerka. Bulmerka was the Olympic champion and Kelly Holmes had never raced against her before. So they met in the final. What happened next? Do you think Kelly Holmes ended up winning the world title in a usual customary fashion? Do you think, again, that, that Kelly Holmes spent the whole day worrying about what her rival was going to do? And by the time she arrived on the track, she lacked energy to do what she uh, plan had been. Or do you think it was a photo finish required to separate them? Three seconds, five seconds, A, B or C. Give us your answer. So again, thank you for responding quickly. And see a fair few of you here, various answers. Let's look. The answer was B. Kelly Holmes said she'd never felt nervous tension like it before. She couldn't sleep the night before the race. The whole day was dominated by what a rival was going to do. So most of the time she arrived on the track, she realised how much energy it had sapped from her. Last one. Anfield 2015, Liverpool against Manchester United. To everyone's surprise, Liverpool have dropped their talismanic captain, Steven Gerrard, but at half-time they're getting beat, so they send him on to save the day. What happens next? Does Steven Gerrard come on and score the winning goal? Does he come on and get himself injured? Or does he come on and get himself sent off after just 40 seconds? A, B or C? This is quite recent in a number of your memories, I can see. A few more seconds. The answer, as many of you have remembered, was that he got himself sent off after 40 seconds, the fastest sending off in Premier League history. But what really did happen next is more interesting for us, and all of them told us that they felt themselves OBE, which is something I think we can all identify with at this current time. It stands for overcome by events. What do we mean by that? Well, often when we have a sense of weight of expectation rests heavy on our shoulders, or the fear of getting it wrong and the consequences of failure, start to burn too, too, too brightly. It often squeezes our potential just to get on with the job and do what we need to do. And in sporting terms, like the examples of Chris Hoy, Kelly Holmes and Steven Gerrard, we can watch it and make judgments. But I'll show you how easy it is that we all find ourselves succumbing to this OBE sensation by playing another quick game. I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen and I want you to do a really simple task for me. Count how many footballs you can see on the picture. The trouble is, I'm only going to give you two seconds to look at it. So there's the picture. Count how many footballs you can see. And then put your answer in the chat function for me. So I can see a massive amount of you there are identifying that there is five footballs, which is absolutely correct. Let me ask you, how many of you also spotted the guy had six fingers on each of his hands? Because I'd argue that's a pretty significant anomaly. So why did you miss it? Well, the reason is you were overcome by events. Pressure and, the, and somebody directing your focus elsewhere meant you missed more obvious issues. And to understand this, we need to know 
how what's going on which is why investing in understanding the psychological brain is key this is what woody allen once described as my second favorite organ and the way i explain it when i work with teams is to understand there's two thinking systems between your ears the red and the blue the red is what we share with every other animal on the planet the blue is unique to us as humans so let's explore them the red thinking system there's three there's three things it gives us a sex drive a desire to procreate and continue the life cycle now we have de- developed some decent checks and measures over this such as uh, but, uh, but but there's three occasions where we relinquish control one of them is the consumption of alcohol one of them is when we fall in love with somebody but the most significant one for us on this call today is for in the middle of the night you ever find yourself waking up in the middle of the night worrying about what's going on at work your thoughts generally tend to be bleak and dark and overwhelming and the reason for that is when you hit a deep sleep pattern the blood supply that starts to be fed exclusively to this red limbic system of your brain and the reason your thoughts tend to be bleak is because the second function is you have a desire to stay alive to know you can cope and when you sense that you're in trouble or when you're not able to, you're going to be overcome by events. As Chris Hoy described, you go into flight mode, you throw your game plan out of the window. Or as Kelly Holmes described, you go into freeze mode, you're like a rabbit caught in the headlights. Or as Steven Gerrard explained, you become belligerent and aggressive in your responses. The third function of our red thinking system, though, is we're pack animals as well, which means that we very quickly develop cliques within our organizations where a toxic culture exists. When you start, if you, if you, I know that you don't allow racism or sexism within your schools, it's abhorrent, but sometimes this pack mentality can take on more subtle hues. Do you ever hear conversations amongst your colleagues where it's about senior management and no good, that department over there are rubbish, those teachers in the primary sector don't understand what we're dealing with? If you want to know whether they're genuine, legitimate, helpful conversations or, in this case, red system conversations, try a really simple test. Change the department or the level of management that have been criticised for race or gender and see how socially acceptable the same conversation would be. Because I know, as you do, you'd be out of the door by the end of the day if you were talking about women in the workplace or people of a certain ethnic type in the same way. So why does it become socially acceptable to still talk about it if just somebody adopts a certain level of management of a job? Well, the answer is it's not. But what the red thinking system is doing is dehumanising another group of people. And once you've dehumanised them, it's easier to delete, to distort or dismiss their messages. In contrast, the blue thinking system does two things. One, it gives us a sense of logic. We have a desire to make sense of the world. And if we can't, guess what? We make up stories. Think about the conspiracy theories in this pandemic. Do you remember the one last April when the Disney Channel started streaming and somehow Mickey Mouse was behind shutting the world down? It might sound ridiculous, but the point is when we're confused and in chaos, we make up stories that give us a narrative. And this is why people gossip. So when you hear your staff in your workplace gossiping, rather than take offence, see it as a sign that you haven't communicated effectively enough. So in that vacuum, they've made up their own stories. The second function, though, lies at the heart of all education, which is we have a society agenda. And the society agenda says, how do we work together? How do we both walk out of this situation having won? 
Now, the trouble is the red thinking system dominates. So how do we take care of both of them? Well, what we found in our interviews is there's two really simple techniques that you can adopt. One of them is about visualization and one of them is about catastrophization. Visualization is a really simple technique used by a guy called Ben Zander in education. Ben Zander urges people to write a letter dated 12 months into the future at the start of the school year. So if you were doing it today with the 25th of June, 2022, and it's a reflection of the year just gone, talk about your successes, your achievements, and your, the things you're proudest of. What that does is that opens your brain up to possibilities rather than probabilities as you live the year in real time. Catastrophization then says, now take some time to work out what could go wrong. And by taking the time to do that and working out how you would handle disasters should they occur, what the evidence says is you can improve the resilience rates of yourself and your colleagues by around 35%. Dame Kelly Holmes, however, would argue the resilience rates are significantly higher. When I interviewed her and asked her what the difference was between being able to run fast and run fast under pressure, she accounted for about 80% of it was down to this emotional awareness. So my challenge to you is, how much time are you spending developing it? Which brings us to this next lesson, which is the role of complete accountability. Let me explain what I mean by this by playing another game. Guess who? I'm going to give you three biographies in the chat function. Guess who I'm describing? So the first person is somebody that grew up in a happy family. His father died at the age of five and literally the very next day his mother came home with a new stepfather, an abusive character that took them away to France. The next 10 years were spent in conflict with this guy, so our interviewee left to join the British Armed Forces, served with distinction, left and found himself unemployed, so rejoined and became a member of the Special Forces. He served three tours of duty in Afghanistan, but when he left there, he was eventually uh, caught up in a conflict with a police officer and put away for 14 months. So a number of you there have immediately guessed that we're describing Ant Middleton. I recently had the guess that it was Ryland Clark O'Neill, which wasn't right on this. In fact, it is, as you've just said, Aunt Middleton. Next one. This lady grew up in the East End of Glasgow. Her family life was shattered at the age of 10 when her brother died. Two years after that, her father had an industrial accident. So it meant she had to leave school at 15 with no qualifications. Eight years later, though, she was made redundant. So she had no job and no qualifications. And that was a catalyst to set up her own successful lingerie business. She made it a huge global phenomenon. And then 20 years later, she suffered a nervous breakdown when she discovered her husband had been having a torrid affair. Guess who we're describing? So again, there's some quick responses there. But you've identified it is Baroness Michelle Moe. Last round. This is a guy who discovered his prodigious talent at the age of seven. That meant he got bullied at school. That went on a national level when one of his rivals publicly attacked him. Four years after that, his father died of brain cancer. Two years after that, the Great British Press decided that it was their job to out him sexually. Again, a number of you immediately identified, we're talking about the diver, Tom Daly. Now, you might legitimately say to me, what on earth are you talking about low-lives, disasters, setbacks in these people's lives for? Well, the answer is, that's what they wanted to talk about, because they regarded these experiences as seminal in their development on their journey to high performance. Let me explain why. Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winning psychologist, studied the way that people remember experiences. 
the way that people will, the way that your students will remember school is traditionally going to be in three parts. The first thing they'll remember is the first time they came to school. The second thing they'll remember is the last time, the last experience they had at school. But the bit that will shape them most is how they, how you handled adversity. When things were bad and tough, how you showed up, it was most significant. So the question is, how do we, how do we use this to our advantage? Well, the first thing is we need to cut out cynicism. Do you know the type of people that come into work and tell you that we're all going to hell in a handbasket, society's never been worse? Well, they drag us into what we call the pessimism cycle. The pessimism cycle is constantly hearing ne negative words, arouses the red thinking system that means that we have less control over our behaviour. Less control over our behaviour leads to less success. Less success then translates into a negative belief, which then drives our cynicism. So the point is we need to eradicate cynicism from vocabularies. Understand that being sceptical is fine because that's asking questions. Cynicism is already prejudging that things won't ever work. The second thing then is to focus relentlessly on what I know you guys know, which is around develop, focusing on effort, not outcome. The way this was explained to us is uh, one of our interviewees gave us a great example and said, when your child comes home and presents you a picture that looks like that, what's your instinct? And we responded that our answer would be you'd immediately start gushing and saying how good it was. And then you'd take it and you'd stick it on the fridge door. What all our interviewees said, that's the mistake that we're making. They suggested that what we should be praising at this moment is how hard the words but not praising the outcome because it's not actually a very good image, but nor should it be from a four-year-old child. And this goes into the Carol Dweck stuff on growth and, and um, fixed mindsets. The evidence on fixed and growth mindsets, I don't want to labour it with you, other than to give you the evidence that well, those that were told they were talented, they tended to invest around four minutes on each of the eight puzzles Carol Dweck gave them. The kids who were told that they were hard workers tended to invest twice as long. When it came to working under real pressure, kids who were talented just assumed their talent wasn't enough and they underperformed against the capabilities. Those that thought it was about working hard tended to outperform. And to finish this section, I want to give you the most downloaded clip we've had to date on the podcast. The clip I'm going to show you has been viewed currently by 8 million people. And the question that I've asked myself is, why is it so popular? And I think part of the reason is, is because it captures beautifully this idea of a growth mindset, but delivered by a high-performing parent. What it also does, though, and I think this is what will resonate with you guys, is it's delivered with the psychological safety of being a loving parent and reassuring their child that cynicism doesn't work. But if that's the route you choose to go down, you'll still be loved and accepted within our family. It's an interview we did with the Dutch footballer Robin van Persie and he recounted a conversation he'd had with his 13-year-old son who was complaining about his treatment at a football game. Have a listen to the power of his message and the way it's delivered and captures his challenge to cynicism and forces him to think about adopting a growth mindset. And I actually had this chat last week, funny enough, seriously, with my son. So my son uh, plays at Feyenoord. He played against uh, um, Ajax under 14. 
he was on the bench. He didn't play. So, uh, in the car, on the way back, he was like a bit moody, disappointed, complaining a little bit about uh, others, about the coach, etc. And then I said, yeah, I said, but Shaquille, I said, you sound like a loser, you know, if you talk like this in a way, you sound like you lost. I said, you are blaming him, you're blaming her, you're blaming this, you're blaming everything. I said, but I don't hear one single thing about yourself. I said, winners, I said, they take control and they blame themselves and they look where they can improve. Yeah. And um, um, this is what you should be thinking about. So I didn't tell him uh, what he should think about. You should ask yourself the question, are you a loser or are you a winner? I said, for me, it doesn't matter. I said, I said, because I'm your dad. I said, the only job I have and uh, your mom has is when you're 20, that you're a good boy, that you're ready for life. You know, you can make your mistakes. You can do what you want. I, I love you for the same amount. It doesn't matter for me if you make it as a football player or not. I said, but you say that this, that this is your passion. So uh, you should take control of your life and stop complaining because Sounds like a loser. I said, and I don't mind. If you want to be a loser, be a loser. I still love you as much. I said, I said, it doesn't matter for me. I said, but if you want to be a winner, take control of your life and stop complaining about others. And then I watched him train the next morning. My, my, my wife said, where are you going? I said, oh, well, I'm going to watch this session. Uh, two days later, actually, because they played on Saturday and Monday morning. So I'm there sitting, cold, hoodie on. I'm looking and I see this tiger training, running, working. And I was like, ah, okay, okay. He realized he has to take control of his life. He's 13 now. So the point that he was making more eloquently than I've done is this, that losers create a culture where they look to point the finger and blame. High-performing cultures start by looking at themselves and taking accountability. So... You're now going to go into these workshops here. And what I'd encourage you to do is decide before you go what you're going to get out of this. I think there's two challenges to this final point, which is about having flexible perspectives, listening to others and maybe taking on different perspectives. Social media is a great device at almost showing us how we often operate from a sense of entitlement, a sense of how we think the world should be. During lockdown, I've enjoyed playing a game, First World Problems where you listen to people complaining about things that if you were to go to a third world country and utter the same complaints, you'd either get a laugh, a cry, or a punch in the mouth as a response, I suspect. You know the type of people that complain about their delivery driver not turning up with their takeaway on time or their waitrose not stocking enough guacamole for your sandwiches? That's what I mean by first world problems. The best three I've had was I had a guy complaining about old people in supermarkets at weekends. I had somebody else saying that when I offer my wife a crisp, she accepts. My poshest first world problem I've heard is somebody saying I've got a Tupperware drawer at home. No, I didn't know you could have one of them. But I've got a Tupperware drawer with too many tubs and not enough lids in it. These are the kind of things I'm talking about. My favourite example of first world problems, I trolled through social media with some of these top five highlights. Duncan Bamatine complaining about his pool cover not opening properly was a, was one. Somebody else complaining they couldn't remember their cleaner's name. The brightness on an iPad hurting their eyes. A toaster with no bagel set in and prep not giving you enough jam in the morning. 
his own things enough that UN war councils would be bristling with indignation at them, I'm sure. But what do they tell us? They tell us that we're stuck in a world of entitlement where we have a model of how we think things should be. We take action and we get an outcome. And when we don't get the outcome we want, we go back and do more of the same action. It's like going abroad on holiday and shouting at foreigners in your, in your mother tongue. When they don't understand, you just speak slower and shout louder. That's single loop learning. What we're asking you to do in these workshops you're going into now is to engage in a bit of double loop learning, which is about listening to other people, taking on other challenges and perspectives. And what that does is it breaks a pattern the way that you normally do things. Look at the way you've read that information on the screen there. There's a pattern. We know exactly how you read it in the order in which you chose to read it. The second thing it does is it changes perspective. It gets you out of an echo chamber of seeing the world in a certain way and forces you to think about it from a different angle. So I'm going to finish the formal bit of this presentation now and give you the chance to go into the workshops that you're going to be invited into and to hopefully take on board some of these ideas and think about how you can apply them. Then when you come back out, I'm happy to pick up any questions and go into a little bit more depth uh, on anything that you want to cover on this. So thank you for listening. Thanks for engaging. Thanks for joining in with the chat function and making it so much fun. Enjoy the workshop session bit and I'll see you in about half an hour. Thanks for your time. Well, welcome back, everyone. And um, I hope you've enjoyed that session where you've been able to sort of talk over some of the things that Damien has uh, shared with us this morning. And um, we've got a number of questions. So I'm going to go straight over to those, if you don't mind, Damien. Is that OK? Oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Um, OK, so first of all, I'm going to go over to Neil Smothers. And interestingly, um, I understand, Neil, that you have, um, you know, our speaker from next week. And that he tells me that in your time, you've been a good footballer. So I'm going to leave you to ask the first question this morning. OK, I know the speaker next week. I, I've never been a good footballer, just to put that, uh, just to put that <laughs> big, uh, at, at the start. Um, thanks. Uh, thanks, Damien. So I was just oh, going yeah. to ask if we were going to implement uh, one or two things uh, within within our kind of environment. What would be what would give us uh, the biggest bang for our buck, and, and how would we implement it? What would you recommend? Well, it's a good question, Neil. So um, thanks for asking it, and thanks for thanks for listening this morning as well. Um, I think a really simple way. I mean, I, I wouldn't that it will always be different. It'll be subjective, depending on your school, and I wouldn't dream of being arrogant enough to sit here and claim that I've got any answers, especially not for a situation that I'm not involved in. I think what I would say is a really simple exercise to do is that all of the stuff that we've covered today is common sense. There's nothing on there that you would have sat there and gone, that uh, I've never heard that before. It was all common sense principles. But it's about how do you introduce it to become common practice. And therefore, the simplest quick win that I think anybody could adopt with this, whether this is individually or if you want to do it within your school, is an exercise that I would sum up in just three simple words, success leaves clues. What I mean by that is I'd, 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 I'd do this maybe as an end of term thing with your staff, if you've got the opportunity of you set the parameters of what success looks like. So it might be the biggest success story you've had with a student, or it might be the best class results you've had or the best subjects, whatever it is, like you set the parameters 
But start by looking at something that you would say has been a success during this last 12 months. And rather than brush over it and go, oh, yeah, we just got lucky, or it was a good year, or there was external factors, do a proper forensic analysis of why you were good, why you were successful. Invite people to contribute to it. Now, the first thing why I'd suggest that is that it has two really powerful effects. One, you're talking about successes, so there's no fear involved in it. And secondly, you're inviting everyone to contribute. And when you do it, when you say do a forensic success, what I'd encourage you to look at is what were the behaviours that were consistently present? So when success occurred, what were you doing to contribute to them? And then by doing that analysis, I think you will start to identify what I what that phrase we used in the session, your trademark behaviours. You will find the behaviours that were there whenever success occurs. And I think that be, then becomes a situation that's co-authored by your staff, that everybody recognises why you're doing it. So it's not just some nice values that you can laminate and stick up in your reception area. These are then behaviours that everyone can live and identify by. And I think that then sets you up for a nice way of trying to establish how do we build those behaviours into every practice that we do, every relationship we have, every uh, touch point uh, in the school. How can we reinforce those behaviours? I think that's a really neat place to start. And it's something that I often do when I work with sports teams is uh, just the exercise there because you're not coming in and trying to create something in a vacuum. You're trying to build on the foundation stones of what is already in evidence and what exists. I was really interested in that because um, that, for me, just reflecting as you were talking, Damien, is, is how, how easy it is for us in education. We focus on the things that we don't do so well and we try to learn from those. But to analyse and learn from success, I think that's a really interesting way of looking things and looking at the evidence um, to move us forward. I thought that was really interesting. Well, thanks, Sharon. But you're right. We often do look at what uh, uh, what we haven't done and look as a consequence of that, that when we start looking at what we haven't done, we're inviting people to point the finger. We're inviting people to say, well, you didn't do this or you didn't deliver this. So you, then you create a culture of fear and people not being accountable, but trying to sort of um, apportion blame elsewhere. Whereas what this does is you say, this is just about looking at what we're good at and everybody's got it. There's that great saying, isn't there, that failure is, um, success has got many fathers and failure is often born an orphan. Mm. You know, and I think that if you want a culture of people being accountable and working together, start with your successes, what you're good at. Thank you, Damien. Thank you. We have another question now from Chris Jackson, and this is on behalf of her group. So, Chris, can I just bring you in now? Hi, 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 Damien. Hi. Thank you so much for, for this morning. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, we, we were chatting and, and you know, we, we don't want to sound as though we're in the uh, in the cycle of pessimism, by the way, either. Uh, <laughs> when we when we ask and think about this question. Um, but we were just, uh, you know, thinking about, the, you know, within the current climate where we haven't had any external accountability, um, no publishing of results, no, no estimation, no categorization. And we actually feel quite proud of ourselves in as much as we feel that we have flourished and we've kept that that innovation. And actually, we've been more innovative and creative than we've ever been uh, before. And we've enabled that. And we've sort of proved ourselves in many ways. Um, 
And but there is a feeling that and there's an inevitability, I suppose, that that sort of local authority and and consortia and Estin accountability will will creep back in. So just wondering if you have any advice on on pushing back so that we don't get back to where we used to be. Yeah, I th- well, first of all, thanks for your question, Christine. But secondly, on behalf of as parents that are not in the education system but have children that are in it, you know, thank you so much to you and your colleagues for your hard work and efforts in these trying circumstances as much as as, as anybody else is facing them. I think what you're describing there is is, is a really fascinating uh insight that I often get when I work in sport let me explain that one of the things that I often look for with sports coaches is that you can tell the difference between uh, a good a good leader and and an average leader in many ways by listening to how they talk after a defeat so what what do I mean by that well what what an average leader will often do is they go out and they talk about the external factors. They say the other team were no good or the facilities they gave us was rubbish or the referee was poor or the weather wasn't conducive. And they often look at factors that are outside of their control. The best leaders, when they face a defeat, the first thing they'll do is go, we weren't good enough today. And this is why we weren't, we didn't train hard enough or our preparation wasn't sufficient. And the thing is that they then make it, their, their locus of control becomes about what they can fix rather than just waiting to get lucky or hoping the referee has a better game next week. So, and that then becomes a really important factor at controlling the controllables and giving your sense of accountability that exists within your organisation rather than worry about what goes on external. So I think what you're describing there of, looking at internally and saying we've done lots of great things while this is the case. A nice way that might be, so one of the success leaves clues exercise I spoke to Neil about earlier might be helpful there of you've done lots of brilliant things during this period to work out what, like what behaviours are consistently present when you've been doing these brilliant factors. And then start thinking a little bit about goal setting. I don't know how much you're familiar with the concepts of goal setting, the three different levels of it. So stop me from patronising you and telling you what you already know. Well, when you set a goal, there has to be three levels at which you set it. And what most organisations do is focus on two at best. So if we start at the top of a goal setting uh, uh, chart, you look at what we call outcome goals. So outcome goals might be things that have an emotional impact on you. So let's take an example like the athletes going off to Tokyo in a couple of weeks for the Olympic Games. If you're Dina Asher Smith, you might set an outcome goal that you want to inspire the next generation of female athletes, right? You might be thinking about if you win the world title, if you win the Olympic gold, you sponsors are going to pay you a fortune. So you might think about the new car you're going to buy, right? So it's all things that have an emotional pull. And the reason that bit is important is because that'll get you out of bed on cold mornings to go and train when you don't feel like it. So you do need to have some kind of emotional pull towards it. But that's not enough on its own because you can be passionate but not have any sense of direction. So that's where you go down to the next standard, which is where your external authorities come in and they set your performance targets. So they say to you, you need to hit standards of this, this and this, and, and they're easily measurable. So again, if you use the Dean Asher Smith example, you can turn up on the 4th of August 
and stand on the finish line in, the, in Yokohama Stadium in, uh, in Japan with the stopwatch in your hand and you can see whether she hits her target of running the 200 metres in 21 seconds. So, and she's done the analysis that says 21 seconds will be enough to win a gold medal, right? So it's black and white. We can see whether she hits it or not. But then what after the performance targets, you then focus on process targets and the process targets say, what are you going to do every day? What's the consistent application of behaviours and how are you going to show up every day? And do those behaviours align to you hitting those performance targets? Does this make sense? So again, to continue the metaphor, Dina Asher-Smith will be going, you know what, I've got to do five track sessions a week. I've got to go to a nutritionist twice a week. I've got to have a massage by my physiotherapist three times a week. I've got to lift weights. So she'll have a whole series of process targets that she controls. And she focuses on doing the best on those processes. And the better she does on those, the better her performance will be. The better her performance will be, the more chance she has of achieving her outcome. But there has to be a complete alignment between your outcome and right down to the processes. So what I'd encourage you to do is, if you've got the external authorities coming in, start by having this conversation with them and saying, you know, in our school, it's about delivering an experience for our students where they feel warm and loved and they're engaged and they learn. The performance targets might be we hit this many sats or however you define it. But every day, we're going to measure our success on these daily habits, how we show up, how we engage. And sometimes, you, even though you do the right thing, you might not hit those performance targets. That doesn't mean you were doing the wrong thing by not hitting them. Like, I, Just to continue it for those that do it, it's like if you don't have this alignment, it's like somebody coming to you and saying to you, I want to lose weight. Well, the quickest way of losing weight for anybody on this call is cut off a limb. Go on the range, have a limb cut off, you'll hit your weight target like that but you'll cripple yourself in the process of doing it. So what you're saying is I want to lose weight in a healthy, sustainable way. And that requires the discipline on habits rather than short-term fixes, if that makes sense. So what I'd encourage you is where there's a misalignment, it's often somewhere between the outcome, the performance and the process. So go back and nail that. That'd be my advice. Thank you. It's really interesting. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And Christine, I'm sure that's a question um, that many would be uh, thinking about right now, even if they haven't quite asked it outright. So thank you very much for asking that question. I'm going to move on quickly to uh, to Catherine now. And I think Catherine has a question that she would like to ask. Borodak, Catherine. Borodak, Damien. Borodak, Catherine. Thanks. I've really enjoyed this morning and I've had a really good laugh as well, which is always which is oh, always good on, on a Friday on a on a wet, miserable Friday morning. Oh, um you. our group were just discussing sort of the, the general issues around um what we've all been facing uh, during the past year. And we were just interested uh, to know your views really. Um especially around the OBE um idea. I thought that was really clever the way you, you put that across to us. Um, with Holmes and Hoy and um, and Gerard, and we've we've all seen those behaviours, um, you know, from from people over the past year, most certainly. And I was just, um, we were just wondering your views on: Do you think that we could be facing an OBE pandemic 
um, following this sort of COVID-19 pandemic? It's a really interesting question, Catherine. And well, first of all, thanks for your kind feedback. And I'm, and I'm chuffed that you've had a bit of a laugh today because I often think doing sessions like this, I think about when I was a kid at school and uh, I think the lessons you enjoy most are the ones where, you, where you're laughing and learning, aren't they? I think the two things go hand in hand. So I'm glad you've found it a bit of a laugh as well. Uh, so thank you for that. I think, uh, yeah, definitely. I think it goes back to... We're not, uh, we don't follow hypocrites, do we? <laughs> is the essence of it. We're hardwired not to follow hypocrites. Like, this is one of the things that I often get asked because I'm lucky enough to work in elite sport. Yeah, have you ever heard that phrase that you often hear in dressing rooms that a leader has lost the dressing room? That where they say, oh, people have stopped, have stopped believing in them. And having been in that situation where I've seen this happen, I've, I've sort of had cause to understand it. And what often happens when people lose faith in a leader is because they start saying and act and behaving something differently. Do you know what I mean? That, 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 that what they, like, I remember many years ago going into uh, an organisation where the chief exec told me he, he had a culture that was a meritocracy. I said, what does that mean? He said, everybody's equal. So I don't care how old you are or what your experience is. If you've got an idea, share it and it'll be treated with the same respect as everyone else. So I was listening to him and I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, we're a meritocracy. He said, you can ask whatever you like. I said, why do you have reserved car parking spaces for the senior leadership team? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're not a meritocracy because you've contradicted yourself and I don't even need to come past the reception area to know that what you say versus what you do isn't the same. And he, so his point to me quite legitimately was, do you think that matters? And I said... 80% 80% of the time, I don't think anyone will ever care or pay attention to it. But I guarantee there'll be about 20% of your time as a leader where you have to say to people, I just need you to trust me. I just need you to follow me and have faith in me. And I said, and I guarantee on those 20% of occasions, everyone will, t- will cite your car parking policy because we're hardwired not to follow hypocrites. So they go, hang on a minute, why should I trust you? Because you've got car parking spaces. So I said, either get ahead of the of that objection by changing your car parking policy or stop making claims that you're a meritocracy. You know what he said? He went, I'll change what I stand for. It's easier. Which tells you how sincere he really was on it. So I think the reason I offer you that as an example is because how much, like have a look at our leaders, have a look at what's gone on around us. And I think in a time of crisis, we'll find out where people genuinely stand, you know, all these people that have told us that they believe in kind, like social media is a great example, isn't it? You know, like when people say, oh, be kind. And then literally in the next tweet, they'll be piling on some poor person that said something out of turn. Do you know what I mean? And giving them a verbal kick in that when you're in times of crisis, you fight. There's a great saying that I used earlier in military environments. You don't rise to the performance. You descend to your natural level of training. And I think, without being political on it. You look at, like, there's a part of me that goes, who voted for these clowns that are in charge now? But you know what? They voted for them just a couple of years ago. And what, what I don't like them without sort of betraying my own political beliefs, but you go, but they told you they didn't give a shit about the poor, the vulnerable. They told you that. They were really clear. They, to be fair to them, they never lied about pretending that they're, that they care about making it a more equal society. 
They never, it's nowhere in any of their policies. So the issue is they're being consistent, that they're being politically consistent with who they are. It's the fact that people have chosen to vote for them rather than and the different sort of media messages that have come out. So I think, yeah, we're definitely going to have this. I think what it's done is it showed up. Look at the movements that have occurred during this lockdown, you know, like just before it, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matters. But I think the real movement that needs to come is a movement of inequality in this country. It's not about, I don't necessarily see it as race or gender. It's about um, your income levels. It's about the inequality that we have. And I think what the what this pandemic has done has definitely exposed those. And I think we will have a crisis. I think we will. We are going to come into it where people, once they've recovered from being overcome by events, will go, I don't want to go back to that. And that's why I think the difference that you guys have made in time of crisis, you have stepped up, you have been there, you have shown how important community is and kindness and decency and all those kind of values. So I think you're well placed to start making, uh, to start speaking with authority because you've, you've behaved with consistency. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer. I'm not sure I've necessarily answered no. it as well as I could have done, Catherine, but I, 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 I hope you feel that it has answered what you asked. Yeah, no, definitely. And, um, you know, everything that you've said there, you know, I'm, I'm sure we, we, we can see. And, you know, also... What you've given us this morning, I feel as well, is especially um, through Christine's great question, um, are some practical things that we can do quite easily, quite straightforward, that could have a big impact um, within our organisations to get to grips with massive issues like um, the inequality. Well, I think that's... But I, I, I think, sort of like, just thinking on my feet with this, I think what you've done is that you've shown the futility of setting sort of national targets... Because what you've done, what this pandemic has done is exposed that for some kids, just being fed and mm. having in a safe home mm. is always going to be more of a priority than necessarily hitting certain SAT standards. So you can't compare the results that you might be getting in an area of deprivation to what it, where the factors of having a warm, safe home and being and food on the table is taken as a granted for somebody that doesn't have that, the, the very survival, the inequality of that says that you can't compare apples with oranges, that it's not a fair conversation. And that's why the focus, I think, on uh, process targets as opposed to performance targets has to be had. And that's why I think you guys are a better place than anyone else to have it because you've behaved with integrity during this pandemic, you've seen the consequences that others have chosen to ignore it, uh, have in real life, in real life conditions. So I think maybe that might be a helpful conversation that you can start challenging, that you can't compare apples to oranges because we're all starting from a different place. A personal best for you in your school will look very different from a personal best for somebody that has, starts from a higher base. Um, Damien, that was, you know, you know, obviously a very in-depth um, sort of response to Catherine's question. And I think you've covered a couple of other people's questions in regards to um, how we manage that impact of the pandemic on our school communities. And certainly when you were talking there, um, I really, you know, felt that some of what you were saying was resonating with my own community and my own school and the experience that my children in my school have had. 
where you say that um, some of the things that seemed so important were actually very unimportant and some of those basic needs became really paramount. So thank you very much for that answer. We've got time for one more quick question. Um, and um, Mark is there, I think, with his question. Damien, thanks for a brilliant session this morning, mate. Really oh, enjoyed you, that, mate. really enjoyed that. It's just a, just a quick one, really, about do you think we're still in this culture where leaders are expected to have all the answers? Um, and, and therefore, is that a barrier still to leaders embracing that vulnerability and humility that you talked about today? Uh, it's an interesting question, Mark. I think in autocratic cultures, definitely. So if we go back to those five types, I think in an autocratic culture, leaders do think that they have to have all the answers. Um, I like quoting a really interesting stat to leaders that think they need to have all the answers. And it's from some, it's from a Dutch economist, a guy called Baz van der Veel. He did a study of how important a leader is in terms of results of an organisation. So he studied this initially in football, then he went into business. And I'm sure the same things apply in education, although I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't seen any figures on that. But what he did was he studied how, how much impact does a leader have on the bottom line? And what he found is, however talented or charismatic a leader will be, they don't impact the bottom line by anything more than 10%. Which I think is a really fascinating stat, because I think it's a double-edged sword. I think for some leaders, you can use it to knock them down a peg or two and go, well, you don't get high on your own supply. Don't, don't get carried away with your own importance, because however important you think you are, you don't impact on it anything more than 10%. So this guy, this economist that did the study, the metaphor he uses is it's like um, it's like think of Boris Johnson or or um, Mark uh, Mark what's he called the Der, Derford is it Drakeford yeah Mark Drakeford yeah, yeah it's Mark Drakeford sorry yeah it's, it's like somebody like him like if Mark Drakeford came out and criticised a certain um, industry within Wales his words would have more weight than any other individual, but he's not going to make or break that industry just by having a crack at it or Boris Johnson. So a leader has more impact than anyone else, but they don't make or break a culture. So sometimes I think when you share that 10%, you can knock them down a peg or two and say, don't get high on your own supply. But I think more frequently what it's a useful stat to ask a leader is, how much do you think you're getting out of your 10%? So if you only have 10% impact, how much do you think you're, you, that you're squeezing out of that impact? And then I think what that then leads to is the diary and the wallet test. And the diary and the wallet test is a test from a management writer called Jim Collins. It says, tell me what your priorities are and then show me your diary and your wallet and let's see how much time and money you invest in addressing those priorities. So you very quickly, if you want to fact test your hypocrisy, <laughs> test where you spend your time and where you spend your money. Are you focusing on the things that give you the best bang for your buck, the best investment? So I think when you get to that honestly, in terms of how much you think you're getting out of your 10%, where you're spending your time, I think that then naturally forces a culture of vulnerability and humility, Mark, because you've got to say, I don't know all the answers. And even if I did, my voice isn't powerful enough to convince everybody. So that forces you then to call on other people to utilise other resources and other people around you. Great. Thanks, Damien. Our pleasure, mate. Thank you. 
Thanks, Damien. That's been a very interesting um, question and answer session for us. And you've really sort of given us some more food for thought. And in a moment or two, we're going to ask you to summarise uh, some of your thoughts. Sure. This morning. Okay. Um, from my point of view, can I say I am going to go away this morning. First of all, I'm going to listen to a few more of those podcasts. If anybody hasn't listened to them, they really are worth listening to. There's a whole range of people there that you can listen to. Sorry, Damien. No, Sharon, I was just going to jump in on that, please, because uh, if you don't mind, me sort of just yeah. just mentioning that I'm, I'm grateful you have i'm conscious that anyone on this call today i don't know if you like me but i'm cynical when somebody turns up and starts <laughs> plugging a product a book or something like that where you go buy my book and the answer's there the reason i wouldn't just say this is the podcasts are free right so nobody's trying to sell you anything with this stuff and i, I the reason i say that is it's a really important value for me that um the reason we put the podcast out there for free is that was a driver to making this stuff accessible for mm-hmm. anyone, regardless of where they sit in the in in the economic terms. So please don't feel that when I'm talking about the podcast or Sharon mentions it, we're trying to flog you or anything. That really isn't the case. It's a free resource that's on YouTube or you can download wherever you are. So I just wanted to say that if that was okay. Thanks, Damien. Thank you. And and anyone, and there are those who know me very well on this uh, call, at uh, this meeting this morning, they know I like free. <laughs> we all do. Uh, we all love free, don't we? But no, they are, there are, I've listened to a few of them. On Mark Isherwood's advice, actually, and I found them very interesting. So thank you, thank you for this morning. And I'm going to go away with some things to ask about, ask myself and to reflect on myself um but also to reflect on with my in my school and my organization okay great well to finish off then i wanted to give you almost a summary of what we've spoken about today and almost invite you to say what are you going to do with this stuff so if you permit me i thought i'd share with you a brief video that summarizes the key messages of everything that we've spoken about here today so let's get this up and I'll just read it through for you. The point is, as we said with Flexible Perspectives, there's two ways you can get anything out of these sessions that have been running over the last few months. You can either turn up here with a mind that's open and curious and that valley of humility stage that we described, or you can turn up with a cynical attitude that what's this for, what's it about, what can someone from outside of my world of education teach me? You're welcome to take either, either approach but what we know is there's only one of them that will get you sustained high-performance results. So let me present it, a summary of this session and ask you, which way are you going to read it? Are you going to read it up the page or are you going to read it downwards? Let me explain what I mean. So we've been speaking about these high-performance lessons and you've got a choice. Your choice is that you could say, let me tell you, I believe that I'm right to be cynical about the impact which messages like this have. I don't believe these high-performance lessons are relevant to me and tying the ideas will help me in my life or career. I believe this, that identifying trademark behaviours can't help me remain consistent in my approach. So I just don't accept what we see as someone who stays true to the best version of me. Instead, years from now, I'll still be reacting and not responding to events and... There's no way that I'll be able to recognise when my emotions have hijacked my ability to stay calm and focused. That's absurd. I believe the need to focus on the best but plan for the worst sounds good in theory but not in practice. And as for the idea that accepting responsibility and not looking for fault is an important factor, I'm afraid that's just bollocks. 
A high performance mindset can't be the difference between me and others, and it's just not true to say that having a flexible perspective is a great way to deal with challenges. High performance is only relevant for the business and sporting elite, not me, and it's foolish to keep thinking there are reasons to believe in the power of these messages, which is one way of looking at it. Or you could say, it's foolish to keep thinking that high performance is only relevant for the business and the league. Having a flexible perspective is a great way to deal with challenges, and it's not true to say that a high performance message can't be the difference. That's just problems. Accepting responsibility and not looking for fault is an important factor. And as for the idea that the need to focus on the best but plan for the worst is good in theory, not in practice, that's absurd. I believe that I'll be able to recognise when emotions have hijacked my ability to stay calm and focused. And there's no way that years from now I'll still be reacting and not responding. Instead, I know that I'll be seen as someone who stays true to the best version of me. Though I don't accept that identifying the trademark behaviours can't help them remain consistent. I believe this. These high performance lessons are relevant to me, and trying the ideas will help in my life and career. So I don't believe that I'm right to be cynical about the, mess- the impact which messages like this can have. Let me tell you, I do believe. And that's the choice I'd like to leave you with. Are you going to be the sort of person that reads down the page? You're going to read it from a different angle and see it from a different perspective. Because that's what this and all of these workshops that you've had so far and that are coming your way over the next few weeks are designed to offer you. It's a chance just to get off the treadmill for a while to reflect on what you're already doing well and then see things from a slightly different perspective that you can take, apply and continue to make such an impact for your students' lives on. So thank you for listening and thanks for engaging. Wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o Bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a phedwch byth â cholli pennod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.